0: Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you, come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your own members. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Who do you, who ye do you think that the scripture saith in vain? The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble." Submit yourselves therefore to God Resist the devil and he will flee from you Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you Clench your hands ye sinners and purify your hearts ye double-minded Be afflicted and mourn and weep Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up Speak not evil one of another brethren He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother Speaketh evil of the law and judgest the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who art thou that that judgest another? Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there for a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. For ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. I ask if you would, before we study uh, the text together, if you would join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name in all the earth. And Father, may the people that you have called unto yourself be a people that truly hollows, reveres, fears your name. It's one thing to profess the name of Jesus, but another thing altogether, as we're seeing here in the book of James, to live Jesus. Before others, the fear of the Lord as you have given it to us definition in the scripture is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Father, may your people revere you and your word and your ways and your commandments and may the path of righteousness be evident in our lives together. Father, I pray that you would guard our tongues And guard our hearts. For we see in your word they are very much connected. Your word says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I pray there would be no inconsistencies in our speech. But, Father, I pray that these tongues would be used rightly for your glory, for your good, for your gospel... Father, the text this morning also shines light on our minds, and I pray that you would work mightily here in our minds, renewing our minds daily through the washing of the Word. And Father, even today, may your Word have its way in us, drawing us like a magnet to walking in your ways, where we need course correction in our thinking, Father, Please make that clear this morning. And may we then repent of our sin against you, turn to you wholeheartedly, and do works befitting repentance. Father, we look forward to hearing from you today from your word. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our Lord, our Savior. Amen. Amen. We all... Like the idea of being accepted by others, don't we? I mean, if we took the time and, and went around and, and asked the question, I don't know that there's a person in here who would say, ah, I don't really like the idea of someone accepting me. We we like to be accepted. In fact, if you just take a moment and you look around the room, go ahead, I'll give you an opportunity to do that. I know young people, parents oftentimes tell you, you know, look up front, you know, and this is you have some opportunity here, because as you look around and you see these other brothers and sisters in the Lord, church family, friends, do you know that these other folks accept you? Do you have an assurance that they accept you as a brother, as a sister? And and I'll put the question on the other side of uh, of the table. When you look around and you see these other Brothers and sisters. Do you accept them? Do you accept them? Are there certain things that you're holding back against any one part of the body? We like to be accepted by others. And yet, I believe it's fair to say that we use these tongues... All too often to send a confusing message to others in the body. Did you know that the Bible calls us, church, to accept one another? There are many one another statements, are there not, in the scripture? Accept one another is one of those statements. Where is it? Romans 15. Some of your translations... May have a different word, perhaps. But I'll start reading in verse 5 because 5 and 6 help us understand 7 of Romans 15. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to, listen to this, to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... Receive or accept or welcome one another. Just as Christ also received or accepted or welcomed us to the glory of God. So what's the basis of our acceptance of others? Is it not based upon an understanding of how Jesus accepted us? In what way, church, did Jesus accept us? I was reminded of the song. Only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand. If you turn in your Bibles, that very idea, that very thought is expressed in Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Here it is. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. This grace by which he made us accepted. Now if God welcomes us to himself while we were yet sinners, why is it that we have such a hard time welcoming others, accepting others, receiving others? See, many of us find ourselves, I believe, on one of two ends of the spectrum with others. We can fall into the ditch of legalism, which raises uh, the banner of doing certain things... As the means by which one is, is saved. Or, or in this case, the means by which one is accepted. And we see in Acts 15 an example of this. Whereby there was one who stood and said, You must be circumcised. Now there was a little disagreement there in that Jerusalem council that day in Acts chapter 15. You see, we can, preg- we can, we can begin this projecting ...of certain things onto others... ...not accepting them... ...unless and until... ...they get with the program... ...or maybe it's better said... ...get with your program. In this sense... ...your acceptance of others... ...is predicated upon that person... ...adhering to your set of principles... ...your set of morals... ...your set of values... You see, operating legalistically is placing certain restrictions. That's the word I think of. Restrictions. You're placing restrictions on that other person. Restrictions that, if adhered to, serve as the ticket for your acceptance of that person. We can also fall into the ditch of license. There's legalism and there's license, isn't there? There there are two ends. And, And that basically takes God's grace and presumes upon it. The logic goes something like this. The more I sin the more grace God gives. His grace is always greater than my sin. Now, there is some truth in what I just said there. But what needs to be corrected is this. God's grace is not given that you might use it as a license to keep on sinning. Right? Romans 6, 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, Paul says. God's grace was given that you might now walk in freedom Freedom in the Spirit, in obedience to the Scriptures. You see, with license, the word that comes to mind is freedom. Now, freedom can be wonderful, but we're not to use our freedom to indulge in the what? Flesh. You operate under certain freedoms, and unless that other person uses the same measure of license, not too much or not too little, you accept them. So your acceptance of others or lack thereof can be clouded by legalism, can be clogged up by license. I want you to think about how God accepted you, church, in the beloved. Think for just a moment that he planned to rescue you from before the foundation of the world. We we like to be accepted but do a poor job in general of accepting others with our tongue. And church, if we do a poor job in general of accepting others with our tongue, what does that also say? We do a poor job of accepting others with our what? Our heart. That's a problem. James is addressing this problem. See, pride can keep us at a distance from others. Pride likes to push people to the perimeter, to, to keep them on the outskirts, to, to resign them to the fringe. Why? See, we like to think that we've got things all together under control. And while it may never be spoken verbally... We like to think that other person doesn't quite measure up. That's pride, church. And God resists the proud. We talked about that last week. But he does pour out grace for the humble. I was thinking about this and was reminded of Sermon on the Mount, I tell you, as you read the book of James, the more I read the book of James, the more I see in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. What we're talking about here reminded me of Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Many of you know it by the golden rule. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do you want them to accept you? Do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now hold on to that because we're going to come back to that and tie that in here in just a moment as we go through James 4. Look at James 4, verse 11. James 4, starting in verse 11. 11 and 12 are going to go together and then 13 and 7, through 17 are going to go together. But really there's a, there's a key theme tying these together. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren, brethren. Brethren, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now the text begins with an imperative, a command, something not to do. Do not speak evil or literally do not speak against. The word has in mind speaking against But James is is really giving the connotation of what it means to speak against someone. You are speaking evil. That's what he's driving at here. The church is called to stop doing something that had been going on. Thus the admonition. Stop it. Do not do this. You see, the the admonition is setting straight something that has been crooked in the church. James chapter 3 taught us how to use the tongue. And it spoke of disaster and the great damage that the tongue holds. It showed how one can profess to be in Christ and yet be double-tongued. Blessing God on Sunday mornings. But cursing men throughout the week. Brethren, this ought not be. That's James chapter 3. Speaking evil of one another is not God's way, is it, church? You know, I'll ask a similar question. I asked this question two weeks ago when we were covering James 4, 1 through 4. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 4, there's a question. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Church, I had the question two weeks ago. The question was this. I had a question of the question. And my question was this. Why is it that James, the pastor, is having to address the church about wars and fights? This ought not be. Not in God's church. I ask a similar question here in verse 11. Why the admonition? Why why the need to have to say this? Speaking evil against one another. Church, this ought not happen. This ought not be. believe some here would probably answer the question to both give the answer to both of those questions from James 4.1 and James 4.11 and you might be quick to just point forward and put on the table sin true sin no doubt it's still a problem it will be as long as we have these earthen tents But it's a problem, church, that's been paid for in full. We need to understand this. It's a problem, but not a hindrance to holy living, not an excuse. It's still a snare. And I've said this every time I read Hebrews 12, it always bothers me. It always grates at me that it says this sin that so easily ensnares me. but it is now rendered powerless according to what I read in Romans 6. Sin is still around, but it is no longer the main attraction, no longer the main deal. You are now, if you are in Christ, you are under new management and these members that used to be pliable towards sin and sin alone are now alive to God. That's good news. So what is it then that causes one to speak evil of another? I think from the context we can conclude your own desires for pleasure, your pride, your tongue's attachment to the world. If you're speaking evil of another in the body of Christ, what does God think about it? What's God think about it? The text says that the one who speaks evil against another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Why, why is that such a big deal? What, what exactly is James getting at here? Is it possible? Is it possible? I believe James is asking the question and he's, he's opening this door. He's opening the window, so to speak, to get a bigger view of what it might mean, what it might look like for those evil words to come rolling out of your mouth that get spoken. I believe James is saying It's so much more than just saying the words. James is wanting us to feel the gravity and the weight of what goes on behind the scenes when these words come forward. What happens when these evil words get spoken? Is it possible that those unkind words that roll off your tongue have a greater weight and impact? You speak evil toward that brother... But have you considered the ramifications of doing so? Have you paused long enough to hear what God has to say about it? Do you have ears to hear what he's saying? In what way is your speaking against a brother, speaking against the law and judging the law? Let me give you a few scriptures that I think are helpful here. Okay, And, and we'll go all the way back to the law itself. We'll go back to the law at least the Pentateuch in describing the law. That's one use of the law. The first five books of the Old Testament. And, and we'll turn our attention just briefly to Leviticus 19. Speaking of some of these moral laws and, and what have you that were in the day. Leviticus 19, 15 through 18. It says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. We, we could just pause right there for just a moment. How are we to judge our neighbor? In righteousness. Listen, you shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. That's not just in the Proverbs, is it? Here in Leviticus. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. It's interesting when you read Old Testament. You read some of the laws in the Old Testament. And you read the Ten Commandments even, right? It's preface. and it's talking about, I, I am the Lord. He'll give, he'll give a what not to do. And then he says, I am the Lord. What's that mean? It means it's, it's his, name. his name is behind what's being submitted and put forth. Therefore, it's a good idea to practice and obey this. I am the Lord, he says. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Well, that's interesting because that, that helps us understand even a little bit further what where, where James is speaking to because, as we'll see, I, I don't believe James is saying that we're never to speak anything toward a brother who is sinning. We need to be real clear and discern what James is talking about here, even here in Leviticus. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. But then listen, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where have we heard that one? You remember Jesus speaking that one? We go into the New Testament and we see in John chapter 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also love one another. Think about that. As I have loved you, Jesus says, you're to love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A few chapters later in John 17, in his prayer to the Father, he's praying for us, church. And he's praying that they all may be one, the followers. Him down the, down the way. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's pretty close oneness. What do you think? That they may also be one in us, Jesus says, that the, that the world may believe that you sent me. Why is it that the world doesn't believe Christianity, church? In part, in large part, it has to do with what Jesus is talking about. When everybody's concerned about their own thing, everybody's concerned about building their own houses, doing their own thing, spending their own pleasures, self, 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 self. How does the world see this picture that Jesus is praying to the Father about? Oneness. It's absent. And because it's absent, the world looks at the church and doesn't see anything different. These are hard words. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, For you brethren have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we just read that in Leviticus, didn't we? But listen to what he says. If you bite and devour one another, if you speak evil against another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, etc. And if there's any other commandment, they're all summed up in this saying. Namely, what, what saying? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we read that in Leviticus, didn't we? We read that in Galatians. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then when we turn to the book of James, contextually in the letter of James, chapter one, we see, but he who looks into this perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Church, how many of you want to be blessed in what you do? I do. I want to be blessed. I really do. I desire that. The one who looks into this perfect law of liberty and continues looking into this perfect law of liberty. By the way, it's contrasted with what comes before in chapter 1. The one who is a hearer, but not a doer. Remember that? And we see in James chapter 2, starting in verse 8, going through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is again. You do well. So what's James getting at here? He says, speak and do. Do. Verse verse 12, speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. You speak evil of the law, James says here in chapter 4. The law is love. Evil speaking is not loving one another. It's far from acceptance of one another. Accepting one another includes genuinely loving one another, church. That's That's what it entails. You judge the law in the sense that you disobey, turning away from what the law says, in particular you shall love your neighbor as yourself, not loving your neighbor, willfully choosing to disobey God in this arena is transgressing the law. James chapter 2 says, if, you know, if, if at any point we, we transgress, just one point, you know, we keep, do not murder perhaps, maybe, maybe, and, and but, but we commit adultery, we break it at one point, we become a transgressor of the law. James chapter 2 tells us that. When you speak evil against your brother, you set yourself up as your own judge. If you look at the end of verse 11. It says, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, earlier in James chapter one, we encountered teaching on the doer of the word. The doer of the word is the one who does what? Who obeys the word. The doer of the law is the one who obeys the law. So if speaking against your brother is judging the law, and judging the law means you're not a doer of the law, here's what's happening. You are positioning yourself in dangerous, dangerous territory according to the text. How do I know that? Keep reading verse 12. There is one lawgiver. Some of your translations have and judge. One lawgiver and judge. Who is able to save and to destroy? Who are you to judge another or to judge a neighbor or to judge one nearby? Church, there's not a one of us who are a lawgiver. Not a one of us are a judge. You have no right Redefining the rules, rewriting the scriptures, revising the truth of God's word to suit your selfish desires. Speaking evil of a brother is damaging to that brother. It's also damaging to the body of Christ. Did you know that? Speaking evil of a brother, speaking evil or thinking it, having it in your heart, bitterness, root of bitterness, right? Some of that stuff that's in the scripture toward a brother, it's damaging to the body. The church is called to humbly walk with God, submitting herself to God, drawing near to God, exhibiting a godly sorrow leading to repentance. We just talked about this, right? Just a few verses earlier. Operating in works befitting repentance. The church is not to operate like the world. The world bites and devours itself, to use the expression of of Galatians 5. Just one note here on not speaking evil, or not judging. I think we need to, to be clear on what it's not saying. The text is not saying you can never speak against a brother and what the brother or sister is doing. When there's known sin, when a brother confronts you or a sister confronts you. By the way, can I, can I just... I just want, I just want to be, try to be helpful here. If we're going to confront a brother or sister in sin... Will you use the word, this Bible, God's revealed word, will you use the Bible as the launching pad and continuing discussion point for what you're saying? I tell folks, you know, a lot. I tell them, My opinion doesn't matter a whole lot. I only want to put forth what I know to be true from the word of God. As you go and have those conversations, and and will they be hard conversations? Yeah, they probably are going to be. But as brothers and sisters in the Lord, our common denominator that we have is Christ. Amen? Christ. And what do we have? As another common denominator. We have the word. This word is truth. So if this word is truth, we can put the word into play on our conversation. Someone comes to you just as another side no word to that someone comes to you with a word. Don't dismiss that, or, or immediately think they're your enemy now. Our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Listen to what that brother's saying. There perhaps is some truth there. Listen to what that sister is saying to you. Perhaps there's some truth there. I found it to be true that whenever I receive some kind of criticism, usually somewhere, somewhere, there's usually some merit of truth in there if I'm looking and listening. That ties in to whether or not you have a humble spirit, too. So what do you do when that brother's sinning? Let me just give you some quick things. Instead of just putting it out there, first of all, ask God for wisdom. Wisdom from above is needed, right? Right? In this situation, submit to God, resist the devil, draw near. Because resist the devil, important in this situation because you know what the devil's gonna want you to do? What's the devil gonna want you to do? Fight, bicker, devour. Outburst of wrath, which is an evidence of the flesh and not evidence of the spirit. See, resist, these are important things as we are in relationship with one another. How about Galatians 6 gently restore. How about Ephesians 4? Exhort that brother in the truth. Now, when we exhort in the truth, with the truth, we can have the truth. But listen, when you go to somebody and you are pointing out or confronting in love, you're confronting someone's sin. If you do not have, this is so important, if you do not have a relationship with that other brother or that other sister, guess what? It's probably going to fall flat on its. It's going... Speaking the truth in love assumes a relationship... That's important. Matthew 18 says, go to him one-on-one. Go find that brother. Go find that sister if there needs to be that conversation. Love him as a brother, giving preference and honor. Romans 12. You know, as we think about not judging one another, we need to be reminded of who God is. God is our great lawgiver. He's our great judge. Those terms, the lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. Reminded of what Jesus says in the Gospels. Not fearing the one who can destroy body, but fear the one who has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. Amen? He's the one we're to fear. Paul says something really interesting In Corinthians chapter 4 as it relates to judging. He says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, writing to the church at Corinth. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself. Now, we can read that and go, wow, Paul, you are are so arrogant. I know of nothing against myself. Come on, Paul, there's got to be something. You know what that is, though? Paul lived and operated his life in such a way he had a clear conscience. And text goes on. He says, I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Or you might also be reminded and remember the passage in Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. James 4, 11 and 12 is pointing you to another damage control situation with the tongue. In James 3, he defines the poison that comes from this small member of the body. In James 4, he shows how the tongue can be used to set itself against God and against one another in the body. And I'm reminded of those words in James chapter 1. My brethren, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. Oh, if we would just operate from that basic principle. James: 126 says that when we do not bridle our tongue, our religion is useless. Church, have you used your tongue to speak evil of a brother or sister this morning? Have you played judge over your brother? If so, what needs to happen? Repent, turn to God, do works fitting of repentance. That's found in Acts 26, by the way. Use your tongue rightly. James 4 speaks of worldly living and godly living. Friendship with the world or friendship relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A friend of God or an enemy of God. Walking in pride, walking in humility. Receiving God's grace or receiving God's resistance. See the contrast put forth? Receiving, and looking at verses 11 and 12, it shows what happens when the tongue operates from the wisdom below with no thought or view to what God thinks about your speech. James 4, 13 through 17, shows what happens when your life, and more specifically, your business, your trade, operates from wisdom below with no thought or view to what God thinks about your operating procedures. I especially enjoy 13 through 17 in light of the fact that it's it's one of the passages in Scripture that I believe speaks specifically to this issue of our work How we go about our work. Plans that we make. Goals, visions, dreams. How do we go about that? According to what the word says. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city. Spend a year there. Buy and sell. Make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? You know what church? Side note. That might be a question you just jot down. That'd be a good question to carry with you through your days, the days that you have remaining. What is your life? Ask that question What is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. See, James presents a scenario of those who are conducting business. And in the day, James is writing, in the day, trading was very common. Trading, merchants, they would travel around and they would buy and they would sell. Very common in the day. So James is, he's putting forth here, he's submitting a very real scenario for first century believers. It's also interesting in looking at the construction of the text in verse 13. It gives us some clues to the spirit behind the scenario. These are all future tense Verbs in verse 13. We will go. We will spend a year there. We will buy and sell. We will make a profit. There's a certainty put forth about the future, there's a certain confidence submitted of what we're going to do. What is your life? You have these great plans about the future, and you seem pretty certain about these things happening. The text says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know, but who does, church? God does. I'm reminded of that song. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow. and I know he holds my hand. Does that spirit, does that spirit describe you, church? A reliance upon God who does know our every tomorrow and a submitting of our plans to what God wants for our lives. Church, what is your life? James paints a picture of your life. Here it is. You ready? Here it is. Here's your life. It's a vapor. Elsewhere in the scripture, it's a shadow. It's a mist. It's temporary. Here for a while. And then it vanishes. You know the vapor. I was, I was drawn to the illustration this week. And I shared it with the family. When he, when he speaks of this vapor. Your life is even a vapor. I, I remember growing up. And I remember staying the night at grandpa and grandma's house. And the one memory I have of staying at grandpa and grandma's house is being awakened in the morning by my grandfather's kettle. It would just, just siren, just loud. I, I woke up. And what comes out of that kettle when that, when that opens up, that you see the steam come out, right? Some of you may still have some coffee pots or some teapots that still do that today, those whistling teapots. And you see the steam coming out. And it'll continue to steam until you turn, turn it off. And it still may then have some steam coming out. But eventually, in a very short while, the steam fades away. Church, that's your life. Here for a while. Gone. Now, some of you say, man, that's pretty sober. That's pretty... It's the scripture. It's the truth. And it ought to prompt us to ask some real questions about what we're doing with our lives. Proverbs 27.1 says exact, almost exactly, almost verbatim what James 4.17 says. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Any of you know what the rest of this day is going to hold? I don't. We've made plans for today. You probably have made plans for today. And there's nothing inherently wrong or bad about making plans. I don't believe James is against making business plans, making agendas, having a course set. I know even amongst the elders, uh, we, we get together and, and, and periodically we'll go through a couple, two to three months of, of scheduling and planning and, and laying out a preaching schedule for, for the next several months. And I tell the guys, I say, this is nothing more than a template. It's a template. If it needs to change, if the Lord needs to change it, we'll change it. But it's a good thing at least to have made plans and prayerfully considered what God would have us preach. See, James here in the text, he's addressing one's work, one's trade, one's business. And it causes us, it ought to cause us, each one of us, and maybe men in particular, it ought to cause us to ask the question, how are you operating your business? How do you go about your work? Are you concerned about generating wealth? Building your income? Building your portfolio? At the expense of asking God and considering God in in the equation? Are you more concerned about success from the world's standpoint or success in God's economy? They're much different. Much, much different. James 4, 15 gives the alternative to the scenario that's put forth in 13. Notice it starts out instead. Instead, right? Verse 13 gives the scenario. Verse 14 gives the reality of our life. Verse 15 then says, instead, here's what you ought to say. If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. One writer says that what James encourages, and I appreciate these words because this is so true. We can fall into a trap here. What James encourages is not the constant verbalization of the formula, if the Lord wills, as though it's some magic formula. Which can easily, he says, become a glib and meaningless recitation But a sincere, what James is after, he says, is that sincere appreciation for God's control of affairs and for his specific will for us. So do you operate your business affairs with God in mind? Do you operate from the perspective that he is God and all that you have is from him? Right? Do you see that the Bible clearly says that he is the one who provides your wealth? Deuteronomy 8.18, if you want to read about it, it says that. God is the one who allows you to be able to have wealth, income. It's not what you've done. You are simply stewarding what he's blessed you with. Isn't it interesting that we're called to steward these very things that he's blessed us with, and yet we essentially, we, we, we like we like pull the blinds down between what we're doing and who God is. It's like, no thanks, God. What has he done? He's provided you a job. He's provided you income. He's provided you an opportunity to take care of your families and so much more. And yet we don't include God in our business plans. I got this money thing taken care of, God. It's dangerous, church. See, you might profess to know God or have a relationship with the Lord, but if you operate your business like the world, your life isn't matching your testimony with Christ. Or to put it as James might say it, your faith isn't working together with your works. What happens when that is going on? When your faith doesn't work together with your works? What's James saying? It's dead. You might be very successful making lots of money. But if your faith and your works aren't working together, don't fool anybody here. You're not being, you might think you got everybody fooled. It's not about that. Remember, what is your life? It's a mist. It's a vapor. Just like the just like the board game that you might play. At the end of the board game, it all goes back in the box, huh? It's, it's done. You're not going to take any of that money with you. James four sixteen says, but now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now this verse, what it does is it further describes the spirit behind verse 13. Okay? The one who makes plans and arrogance. Boasting. Descriptive of this wisdom from below in James 3.14. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above. It's earthly. It's sensual. It's demonic. You see, it's this pride of life, one writer says this arrogant sense of self-sufficiency and self-importance that John, in the first epistle, he deplores as a characteristic of the world. All there's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not of the Father, it's of the world. See, people not only leave God out of the account in planning their lives... He says it's the essence of sin that they brag about it as well. I take center stage in place of God. All such boasting is evil. Those who are humble and contrite, depending on God for everything, even their business affairs, taking it to the Lord in prayer. You arrive at 417... Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Who knows the good he ought to do and he doesn't do it, sin. Sin of omission. You know, there are a few instances in the scripture, are there not, where There are certain things that people didn't do that they should have done. Scripture makes, I believe, very clear. These sins of omission are as real and as serious as the sins of commission. Right? That servant in Jesus' parable who fails to use the money that he was entrusted with. What's he do with that money? Buried it. what about in Matthew 25, those goats who failed to care for the outcasts of society, whatever you've done for the least of these, they they didn't do it. Or what about what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 47? That servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. He knew his master's will. He just didn't do it. Church, you're sitting here today and you have the privilege and the opportunity to have God's precious word. You have a copy of it. You probably have several copies of it in your home. And many of you know what some of these things say. You have sat in a chair and you have heard the word go forth. Or as James says, the implanted word. It's come to you. You've heard it with your ears. You're not ignorant of what this says. You've heard the truth. James chapter 1 says... If hearing is all we do... And we don't... Obey the word... We are deceiving ourselves. Are we not? This is not a matter of ignorance. To him who knows to do good... And does not do it... To him it is sin... I want you to think about that and I want you to couple that with the question in a few verses previous. What is your life? You see, as a believer in Christ, you know the good that you ought to do. And some might say, well, I, you know, if you're not a believer in Christ, well, no, I could point you to a place in the scripture in Romans talks about having the, the conscience of love. It's written in your heart. The, the, this doing the right thing. <laughs> Even if you're not in Christ. There's some awareness God has given to you of right and wrong. And yet the church of all people, the church, having to talk about speaking evil of one another, having to talk about wars and fights among you, we should be one. Working, operating, walking together as one in the Holy Spirit. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, To him it is sin. What is your life? Church, the fact that the scripture defines in part what your life is, it's it's but a vapor. It's here for a while and it's gone. And based on what verse 17 says, for those of you who know the good you ought to do, you don't do it. It's sin. There is going to be a day, there's going to be a time when... You're either going to leave this earth. Your vapor moment is going to be gone. Or the Lord shall return. That'd be wonderful. Look forward to that. Eagerly await the Savior, right? Many of you have heard this truth preached. You know the good you ought to do. You know that surrendering your life to Christ... Is what you need to do. You have for so long been living your life with just controlling this, just trying to control everything and you don't want to let go of it. I so just want to control.
0: Due to technical difficulties, approximately the next 60 seconds of the message could not be recorded. We apologize for the interruption. We'll now pick up where the recording was restored.
1: Well, that's what's needed. And that's what I believe what the text would call us to. That's between you and the Lord. Not going to have an invitation. Not going to have a time where you walk an aisle. But I do believe the text is, is forcefully being put into all of our laps this morning to consider our tongues, our speech, one another, and to also consider this life that we live, our business practices, procedures, how we operate. Have we forgotten God? I saw a church sign this week said, God is not dead. It's a a profound statement. (laughs) Listen, we would have no need to have a sign that says, God is not dead. If the church would live with the life that God has given to us in Christ. He has so much for us. How can we turn away from him, church? He has provided his one and only son. The one who has provided and given his only son. Will he not much more? I'm thinking of Romans 8. Church, this morning, I want you to ask the question. Carry it around in your pocket. Write it down on a note card. Maybe keep it in your Bible. Maybe write it above James chapter 4, the beginning of James chapter 4. But I believe the question that's in the text is a question that we need to carry around with us. We need to be reminded of what our life is. Because when we understand and have some idea from the scripture of what our life is, it's going to help us to be able to accept one another. We talked about earlier. We're We're here for a while, we're gone. Love one another. Serve one another. Be the body of Christ, church. I'm grateful that while we may not know what tomorrow holds, we serve a God who knows all of our days. Before the foundation of the world, he knew every one of our days. Psalm 139 tells us. Praise God for that. And he's ordained every single one of our days. Isn't there a wonderful security in that? Every single one of our days, God is ordained. Will you trust him this morning for all that? Will you include him? Welcome him Some of us need to not only work on accepting and welcoming others, but we need to work on welcoming and accepting God into our lives. Every corner, every crevice of our lives, He wants it all. He's a jealous God, and He deserves all of it. The one who laid down His life for us, we are in the same vein to lay down our lives for the brethren. Will you do that this morning? Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. for a very timely reminder of our lives. What is our life? We thank you, Lord, that you are the creator of life. It's significant because you are the creator of life. You are the one who, in the beginning, breathed life in that first man and he became a living being. You are also the one who gives us life, eternal, new life, new creation kind of life, By giving to us and pouring out in our hearts the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, thank you. I pray this church would not settle for lethargic living. For lukewarm living. We see from the book of Revelation what you think about lukewarm, lethargic living. Pray, Father, that we would take a stand as a church. To live our days, however many we have left. In light of what your word says. To live them in a way that we would be witnesses to Jesus all of our days. There would not be a day go by where we don't think much of you. Grant us grace, Lord. May grace be upon us as we speak. And Father, for that to happen, as we read in Colossians chapter 4, for that to happen, there must be a spirit within us of humility, of submission, of coming under your control. Not just saying right words, but operationally living this out that the world might believe. Oh, that may that be an objective of ours, that as we carry these things out, that we would see that this is going to be an impact for the world around us, to see Christ, to let our light shine before men, that they might see you, Father. May that be our aim. May your word, which is truth, permeate our lives, flow from our tongue. And be that which we dwell upon each day and meditate upon. These lovely and good things, excellent things found in your word. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. I thank you for his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, the Bible says Christ died for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that you've afforded to us. Father, we're grateful. And I pray that all of our days would be spent fearing you that that would be foundational in our lives, a fear of you, that we would hate evil, that we would forsake it and turn from it and walk wholeheartedly, steadfastly with you. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.